Welcome to Conflict Management Becoming Peacemakers. My name is Mary Harmison. Um, I am the Academic and Admissions Director at Southeastern University's Ohio Regional Campus right here in Columbus, Ohio. We're located at Polaris. And so I um, wanted to do this session today and I'm excited about it. As I said, um, this is going to have a lot of content today, so what um, I'm showing up on that presentation is going to be available for download within the Synergy schedule, so you will be able to go and find these notes later on. Um, at the end of our session, I'm hoping to get through the content quickly enough today that at the end of the session we can do a little bit of Q&A. So I'm sure we're going to cover some things and um, hopefully it's going to really stimulate you guys to think a lot. Um, maybe about past conflicts, things that you're going through, things maybe for the future, uh, ways you can set things up uh, to kind of help out in, in interesting situations. So. Um, Without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and kind of get into the meat of what we're talking about. Um, most of this content today is taken from Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker. So if you like what you hear today, I encourage you to get a hold of his book. It's, it really is very thorough, very, very helpful, um, especially if you're going to be in kind of a leadership role and dealing with people so on a regular basis. So let's go ahead and get started here. So I want to just start out a little bit to talk about the case for peacemaking. Um, Ken Sandy, who's the author of our, of our book, he writes, conflict robs us of a measurable time, energy, money, and opportunities in ministry or business. Worst of all, it can destroy our Christian witness. When believers are bitterly embroiled in disagreement or they're coldly estranged from one another, Few people will pay attention when we try to talk to them about the reconciling love of Jesus Christ. But the opposite is also true. When Christians learn to be peacemakers, they can turn a conflict into an opportunity to strengthen relationships, to preserve valuable resources, and to make their lives a testimony to the love and power of Christ. So as we go through life, one of the things I'm going to tell you up front, conflict is unavoidable. It doesn't matter how much you prayed up, doesn't matter how much time you spent in the Word, how much you worshipped up, you're still going to encounter conflict when you go out into your day. But how we handle conflict both within and outside the church is going to determine how successful we will be at reaching others with the gospel of Christ. If conflict divides us, at best, we're going to find out in the world that our message is of little interest. At worst, people may actually call us hypocrites. I mean, that's just the reality. But if we learn to be peacemakers in a volatile world, and I think we can all attest in the last year this world has become pretty volatile. If we learn to be peacemakers, our opponents are going to wonder, why have we responded with grace instead of love or frustration or hatred? And that is going to open up the door for us to share the gospel, and our message is going to ring true when we share it. So that's part of the reason why peacemaking is extremely important. Let's look at some, some stats for this. So Faith Communities in the USA Today was a research study done in 2000. And the researcher Carl Dudley reported that 75% of congregations reported some level of conflict in the last five years. Disagreements were reported in every aspect of church life. 
from theological beliefs to the way money was raised and spent, from worship practices, hello, to mission priorities, from lay decision-making to pastoral leadership styles, so all across the board. Decision-making was the area where conflict was most frequently reported at about 60%, but careful analysis shows that disputes over personal issues and pastoral leadership were the most emotionally intense issues. Although some level of conflict was almost universal, about one in four congregations reported conflict that was serious enough to have a lasting impact on the congregation. The author entitled his report, Conflict, Synonym for Congregation. Hmm, yeah. Okay, some other stats. Let's look at these. 23 to 25% of pastors have been terminated forcefully. That's pretty high. Okay. Conflict is the root cause for most forced exits. And this author, Greenfield, writes, it doesn't really matter what the problems are. In most cases, the minister is blamed and is responsible for whatever is wrong in the church and its ministry. About 34% of current ministers serve in a church that forced the previous leader to resign. Amazing, huh? And about 1,500 pastors leave their assignments every month in the United States because of conflict, burnout, or moral failure. And these are pretty sobering statistics. This kind of gives you a case for why we need to study conflict management and really learn this peacemaking idea. So what I want to do right now is I want to take a little bit of time to develop um, a place in Scripture where you can go just to kind of be reminded of these principles. So Ephesians chapter 4 is kind of my go-to spot. If you have your Bible, you're welcome to open it and just take a quick look in there. I'm not going to read through the whole chapter because we've got a lot to cover today. But I want to pull out a couple of themes from that chapter for you. So the first one, Paul kind of bookends this chapter, beginning and end, with a theme of identity and calling. Okay, so he tells us in verse 1, lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God in Ephesians um, chapter 4, verse 1. Conflict um, was clearly a problem in the church. We know, you know, of course, with these statistics, why we need to be peacemakers. But Paul is kind of getting to the root of some very practical things um, that the church needs to do to fulfill its mission. Okay? He's reassuring us our, identi our identity does not rest in what we own, in what we do, or in our financial connections. Paul is kind of developing this whole idea of unity within the church as a measure of our maturity, okay? And the word unity I want to point out um, begins with the prefix uni, meaning one, right? So singular, Paul lists one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, and he's making the point that we all have a singular purpose and calling. We should all move together and cooperate in service of God and not be going multiple directions according to our own lusts, our own desires. In short, he's trying to tell us all, hey, we're on the same team. So we've got to move together and work together. Paul states, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit. That advance there. Whoops. Did we go too far? 
Yes, okay. So keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Um, and that's from Ephesians 4.3. Peacemaking is essential to staying unified. We can define united as many people acting together as one. We are all part of the body of Christ, and we are connected. So that means if one suffers, we're all suffering if we're part of the same body. Division is the enemy of unity, and each member of the body has a role in peacekeeping, peacemaking I'm sorry, to keep the body healthy and growing. So our conclusion here is peacemaking is essential to staying unified. So Paul's foundation for peacemaking includes the following principles, and I've kind of got them laid out according to the verses in Ephesians chapter 4. So honesty, in verse 15, he says, speak the truth in love. Generosity is a part of peacemaking. Give generously to others in need, verse 28. Care, being careful with our speech. Don't use foul or abusive language. That's in verse 29. Verse 32, be careful how we treat others. And he says, be kind to each other and tender-hearted. Forgiveness is also important. Forgiving one another just as God through Christ forgave you. And that is in Ephesians 32. So Paul concludes this section of his letter with two significant observations. First, without peacemaking, we will bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit. And he says that in Ephesians um, verse, chapter 4, verse 30. Second, again, he reminds us our identity is in Christ as God's dear children. Thus, he exhorts us that we should imitate God and live a life of sacrificial love as Christ did. So let's take this whole idea of peacemaking and conflict a little bit further. And so I have an analogy that I want to use with you. Okay. I feel like the way I understand conflict the best is by considering that conflict is a lot like fire. Okay, so let's think about this. It, fire isn't good or bad, it's neutral. And then we could say the same thing really for conflict. It's neither good nor bad. But how you handle conflict determines whether it's going to be constructive or destructive. And this way conflict is a lot like a fire. Okay, so let's think about it. Who doesn't love a campfire? especially on a cold night. It's pretty cool, okay? Because that campfire is going to offer you warmth, comfort, light, security, maybe even some sustenance if you're gonna roast some s'mores there or a hot dog over that fire. So that campfire can be really great when it's kept under control. But if we let it get out of control, it can start a forest fire. And that's when things get really dangerous and really scary. So, Similarly, when conflict is under control, it can clarify intentions, it can clarify boundaries, it can increase trust between people, it can deepen relationship, and it can actually unify if it's handled well. But out of control, conflict can have the opposite effects. It can actually confuse thinking, it can decrease trust between people, it can actually end relationships, and it can end up dividing. So we want to be really careful with how we use and approach conflict. James wrote about the tongue. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. So. James kind of liked that analogy, I think, a little bit too. So like a fire and our tongues, we've got to be careful to keep conflict under control by handling it wisely.
So let's look at some very common sources of conflict. Conflict, again, it's a part of life and it's going to arise in a lot of different ways. Um, Ken Sandy defines conflict as a difference in opinion or purpose that frustrates someone's goals or desires. Other authors, Shachuk and Hauser, believe that conflict results when people feel their territory is threatened or when two things try to occupy the same space at the same time. And I'll bet that's never happened with the little kids in this room. What do you think? <laughs> so I kind of love the fact that we're here in this kid's classroom today because it reminds me this is something, it's a lifelong learning process that we start when we're little and we have to continue all the way through our lives. So, sources of conflict in the church can include strong feelings and emotions, it could be differences of opinion, it could be misunderstanding, um, misalignment of values, could be miscommunication. I'm a communications ma uh, major, I, that was when I, how I did my undergrad, I still miscommunicate occasionally, so all, always something to be watchful for. Cultural differences, the more diversity we have in our communities and in our congregations, that can actually be a source of conflict that we have to watch for. Um, and then competition for limited resources. Obviously most churches, most organizations have a budget, a fixed amount, and so sometimes people kind of get competitive over how those things are gonna be used. So those are some of the kind of normal sources of conflict. And then we can also get into some sinful sources of conflict, okay? So unfortunately, sinful behavior can generate conflict as well. James' letter is really insightful. He says in James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Sinful sources of conflict include elevating a desire to the level of idolatry. It's kind of when you want something, it might be a good thing that you want, but maybe you want it absolutely too much, that you're willing to do some, some harmful things to get that. Um, it can also include jealousy and selfish ambition. James also um, identifies those. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says also sexual immorality, greed, and obscene and foolish talk. Those can be some sources of sinful conflict as well. So what we need to do um, is try to make the most out of conflict when it arises, okay? So Shachuk and Hauser write, conflict can actually be good for a congregation. So I'm sure probably some of you are like, whoa, <laughs> revolutionary concept here, especially if you've been through it. But conflict can actually be good for a congregation. It stirs things up and gets energies flowing, perhaps allowing for necessary change. It helps to clarify goals and differences of opinion. The prophet Malachi speaks of a refiner's fire that purifies. And work, working through conflict can really have a purifying effect on a church. For Christ is like a blazing fire refining precious metal, and he can bleach the dirtiest garments. Like a refiner of silver, he will sit and closely watch as the dross is burned away. He will purify the Levites, the ministers of God, refining them like gold or silver so that they will do their work for God with pure hearts. And that's from Malachi chapter 3. 
conflict actually presents us with a precious opportunity for clarification, for positive change, for growth, and even for purification. In fact, some scholars argue that the church needs more conflict and not less. Kind of interesting, huh? <laughs> Rahim notes in his research that a lack of conflict actually contributes to stagnation. So sometimes I've been in some atmospheres where um, leadership will kind of put on this aura like, we don't have problems here. We are a conflict-free zone. That's actually really unhealthy. <laughs> So we need to acknowledge conflict and we need to learn how to deal with it in a positive and open way. So that's what we're going to kind of go for for the rest of our session today. Okay, so I just want to talk a little bit about conflict management defined. Um, we, as we're trying to keep conflict under control, that's, that's our purpose here in terms of learning conflict management. So concerning conflict management, Rahim writes, conflict management does not necessarily imply avoiding it, reduction or termination of conflict. It involves designing effective strategies to minimize the dysfunctions of conflict and enhancing the constructive functions of conflict in order to enhance learning and effectiveness. In other words, we're trying to get conflict to be helpful, but we need to keep it from becoming that wildfire that burns down the neighborhood. So that's our goal. So we're going to look at a specific model today called the four G's of peacemaking. And that again is from Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker. So these are the four steps that we're going to kind of focus on for the, the bulk of our time together today. Um, the four G's, just I'm going to outline them for you and then we're going to dive deep into each one. The first one is glorify God in the situation. The second one is get that log out of your eye. We'll cover that. Third one is gently restore. And the fourth one is go and be reconciled. So four G's, obviously all those start with a G. So we're going to go ahead and dive in here. The first one is glorify God. When you face a conflict, for example, if somebody mistreats you or wrongs you, you have a decision to make. People who prefer to avoid conflict tend to favor an escape response. They might actually run from conflict. But people who are competitive and want to win at any cost, they might actually select an attack response. <laughs> and we've probably encountered one or two of those. They're memorable. <laughs> so to avoid these extremes, the key question that you want to ask yourself is, how can I please and honor God in this situation? It's a very important first question to ask. So inviting God into the situation through prayer and by examination of the scriptures actually increases your options. Because, um, you know, if you're considering, do I run, do I attack? Well, if I invite God in, I'm going to have more options than just those two extremes. So we want to increase our options in the situation. And then that's also going to provide safeguards for relationships if we're praying and we're asking God to guide us through this process. So inviting God in may give you an opportunity even to share the gospel with others somewhere along the way, which how great is that? If you can work that in there somehow, or if Holy Spirit works it in there for you. So, But without that focus on God's plan, we run the risk of falling back on our emotions because we know they're there. And then we also 
run the risk of damaging valuable relationships, which is something I know no one in the room wants to do. So the ways we glorify God are by trusting him, by obeying him, especially his word, by imitating him, and by acknowledging him in the situation. So those are steps, key things that you can do. Why are we going to do it this way? Well, because let me tell you, Jesus' reputation depends on unity, our unity as the church. Okay? It's important to glorify God in the midst of conflict. Um, Jesus said, your strong love for each other will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So that strong love for each other needs to be on display. Ken Sandy writes, when peace and unity characterize your relationships with other people, you show that you are God's child and he is present and working in your life. The converse is also true. When your life is filled with unresolved conflict and broken relationships, you will have little success in sharing the good news about Jesus' saving work on the cross. Just before Jesus was taken away to be crucified, he prayed to his father, and he prayed for his current and future disciples, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. When the world, then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So Jesus was saying that that unity is what's going to cause the world to know. Okay, so it's very important. Peace and unity within the body of believers is actually a prerequisite to sharing the gospel successfully. We need to keep that in mind. So next thing I want you guys to understand is unity in the church is not the same as uniformity. Okay? We don't all have to be the same and think the same to get along and to be unified. And that's, that's a relief because it's hard work trying to make other people change. <laughs> so I've tried it. It's hard. It's tough. <laughs> so this is the good news today. Uniformity or unity is not the same as uniformity. Um, unity indicates that we're part of one body and we're on the same team, but nowhere in scripture are we commanded to be exactly duplicate copies of one another. So in fact, our Creator uniquely designed each one of us and delights that we are different. We have different fingerprints, we have different preferences, we have different perspectives, we have different abilities, we have different gifts. Okay, so we're unique. Creation is diverse. I mean, if you look outside, the plants we're looking at are diverse. Um, so those differences among us are actually beneficial. Paul explains the need for diversity within the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12, noting, and he says in verse 19, I think this is so cool, how strange a body would be if it only had one part. I mean, if the body was just a big eyeball rolling around on the floor, that's a little bit disturbing. The body needs all those parts to function and to, to look normal. So in terms of our, of our churches, we need all those different people, those different parts but they have to be unified, they have to work together. So, in other words, um, uniformity would make the body of Christ both unsightly and non-functional. So, unity grows in humility, grows in gentleness, it grows in patience and long-suffering, and that agape love that seeks God's best for others. And that's reflected in Ephesians chapter four, always be humble and patient 
are humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowances for one another's faults because of your love. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, that's one of my peacemaking memory verses right there because it just kind of encapsulates that attitude that we need to have when we approach a conflict. So let's talk a little bit more about how we steward a conflict. The best way to glorify God is to develop a deep and abiding trust in God's goodness to us. His sovereignty shows that he will sometimes allow difficult circumstances in our lives not to harm us, but rather to allow us to grow through them. Romans 8.28 assures us that if we love God, everything is going to eventually work out for our good although not necessarily according to our preferences. And so the best approach to a conflict is to steward it. A steward is always motivated to honor and serve the master, and a steward understands the master's will and faithfully executes it. And a steward, finally, is not ashamed to ask for assistance when he or she needs it. So those are important things. Sometimes you get in a situation and you, you, it's beyond you. You need to ask for help. So those are important things, important indications of humility. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. So God strengthens his faithful stewards. So that is also comforting. All right, so that's a little bit about um, the first G of honoring God. How can I honor God in this conflict? The second G is getting the log out of your eye. <laughs> so I put up there a little illustration, which is kind of fun. So we've got a, a young guy and it looks like a pastor, and then there's this third guy off to the side. And just in case it's a little difficult to read that, he says, ha ha, you just told him that he has a splinter in his eye and you have a beam in yours. And of course, he's got a tree growing out of his head. <laughs> so, kind of fun, makes the point in a humorous way, but makes the point nonetheless. So, peacemaking um, is, is partly about getting the log out of your eye. This is taken from Jesus' instruction in Matthew chapter 7. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So, in other words, examining yourself is important uh, before you try and help somebody else else out with their faults it's important to recognize that you may have a few of your own and deal with those first so now this is typically not an enjoyable process but it's nonetheless necessary <laughs> okay so the key question to ask yourself with G number two get the log out of your eye is how can I show Jesus's work in me by taking responsibility for my contribution to this conflict. And so oftentimes, you know, that is one of the first steps to resolving the conflict is to examine yourself and say, what have I contributed to this situation? So, um, and typically you, you may find some things. Looking in that mirror sometimes isn't always pleasant, but it's necessary, okay? So let's go a little bit deeper here. Let's talk about examining ourselves. Um, if you're involved in a conflict, some questions you could ask yourself could be, did I miscommunicate? Have I been overly sensitive? Have I contributed to the conflict with sinful behavior or maybe just a bad attitude? If I'm not sure, there's a couple things I can do. I could check scriptures. I could ask a trusted friend who I know will tell me the truth, even if they know I don't want to hear it. Um, 
those of you who are married, you could try asking your spouse. <laughs> Mine's always eager to tell me where I've <laughs> blown it. So, um, and that's, that's definitely a humbling uh, opportunity there. But it is important to ask some of these very um, important questions. So next, you're going to need to define the issues and separate material issues from personal ones. And so for each issue, you might want to ask, is this really worth fighting over? Sometimes that's, that's a really important question because sometimes the cost of an unresolved conflict is more expensive than actually conceding. Okay, sometimes the stress that you put yourself and others under just to make your point really isn't worth it in the long run. And it's important to understand that. If an offense is minor, consider overlooking it. Especially if it doesn't really involve sin, if it's just about a personal preference. You know, you can let that go. Um, Proverbs 19 tells us a person's wisdom yields patience, and it is to one's glory to overlook an offense. So that is one option with get the log out of your eye. Now, another thing we want to be careful of is to beware of idols. So we talked about, we mentioned that a little bit up front earlier in our session. Idols can be good or bad desires that have gone wrong. So Sandy describes how desires can progress um, from a normal desire through stages until it actually becomes an idol. And the stages he, he identifies, first I desire something, then I demand it. If I don't get it, then I start judging the people who don't give it to me. And then finally, to get what I want, I punish people. Sometimes we do that overtly, sometimes it's passive aggressively. Okay, so that's something we definitely need to watch ourselves for. Conflict usually involves some kind of a desire. So when that desire goes unmet, we can start to magnify its importance beyond really where it belongs. Um, Martin Luther told us and, and wrote, to whatever you give your heart and entrust your being, that, I say, is really your God. So ask yourself some, you know, there's some questions to ask. What do I want to preserve or what do I want to avoid at all costs? Where do I put my trust? What do I fear? And when a certain desire is not met, do I feel frustration? Do I get anxious? Do I have resentment, bitterness, anger, or do I get depressed? So if you can put your finger on some of those things, um, you may identify something in your life that's an idol that maybe you need to spend some time talking to God about. So God tells us to beware of idols because idolatry is always bondage. It's a form of bondage, and there's only one way out of that. First, we have to recognize that it is an idolatry and that all idolatry is sin against God. And we know, thankfully, that if we confess those sins, God is going to be faithful and just to forgive us um, because of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross for our sins. So we know that. God loves to deliver his children from every form of bondage. So we know that anytime we repent of those things, God's going to restore us to the, our proper place, okay, um, to his proper place in your life. So we want to fear God. We want to love him. We want to trust and delight ourselves in him. And so, you know, again, looking for these things that might be becoming like too much of a desire or an idol in our lives, 
Um, it's important if you're struggling with that. My, you know, one one bit of advice I can give to you is try journaling a confession. Um, and then getting into the scriptures um, that help you worship and delight yourself in God. So sometimes if we've identified that idol or that place where maybe we kind of let things get out of hand, to really resolve that situation, the next step is, is we need to go to the people that we affected with that, and sometimes we need to confess and apologize. So one of the tools I found super helpful when I was doing this research is called the seven A's of confession. Okay. So if you're going to go to somebody and you're going to confess a fault or a sin or, you know, do an apology, here's some, some good ideas here. So number one, address everyone involved. Don't leave anybody out. Number two, avoid the words if, but, or maybe <laughs> in your confession. <laughs> okay. So if you go to your spouse and say, honey, if I offended you of negates the whole thing of what you're trying to smooth over. <laughs> you got to say, I know I offended you. <laughs> okay. Admit specifically. So get very specific about what you did. Don't just be like really vague. Acknowledge the hurt that you caused. Accept the consequences of your actions. Explain how you're going to alter your behavior in the future. Okay, and then finally ask for forgiveness and understand that sometimes people need to think and process before they're going to forgive you and tell you that they're going to forgive you. Sometimes you need to do this process and then step away and give them time. Okay, so, and I think this is, this could be like marriage counseling gold here. <laughs> so, alrighty. The next step in our process, our third G, is going to be restore gently or gently restore. It's based on Paul's instruction to the Galatian church. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. In our, um, let's see, we've learned to do the hard work. In the, in the last G of recognizing and confessing our own faults. Um, and with that process comes freedom and a better position to help others. So when we get to this part of gently restoring, our key question is going to be, how can I lovingly serve others by helping them to take responsibility for their contribution to the conflict? So you're modeling this first by taking responsibility for your contribution and then the, the next part is maybe helping them to take responsibility for their contribution to the conflict. Now part of that, we're, we're kind of exhibiting the golden rule here, right? So, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. We're familiar with the golden rule, do to others what you want to have them do to you. Now what's interesting is the golden rule often has the golden result. And that is, is how you treat others, they're going to respond in the same way. So if I use those seven A's of confession and I've gone to someone and I've said, look, I know I did this. I'm specific. This is how it hurt you. This is how I'm going to change in the future. Will you forgive me? A lot of times what's going to follow is that person's going to go, oh, you know, I, I kind of messed up too. <laughs> and I did this and this. And... I'm sorry for that too. Will you forgive me? 
So a lot of times how we reach out and treat others, they're going to respond in that way. And that's very instructive because, you know, if we reach out and we're angry and we don't do that seven A's of confession, we might find that we're going to get that right back at us. So this golden rule and golden result and gently restoring others is pretty, pretty important. Um, another thing that we want to look at here um, is, is the sin too damaging to overlook? So it is we're going through and we're trying to help somebody evaluate their contribution to a conflict. This is something we want to keep in mind. Um, earlier we talked about we have the opportunity to overlook an offense. However, there are certain situations where you cannot do that. And one of those would be as if the sin is a very damaging sin or if the problem is, is significant. Okay, So if an offense is minor, we can overlook it. But if it's too damaging to overlook, you've got to form a plan. So these are some cases where you would not want to overlook someone's sin. Number one, it dishonors God. Okay, It damages your relationship. That's another one. Thirdly, if it hurts others, and especially if it's ongoing. And then finally, if it's hurting the offender, the person who's doing it. Okay, Those are times and situations where we can't just ignore what's going on. So if someone falls, sins fall into this category above, they probably need your help and your loving service to recognize and escape from their situation, but you have to still use wisdom. Um, and, and part of that is it's generally not wise. Like if, if it's, an, for example, an abusive situation and someone is being abused, it's not really a good idea for the person being abused to go and confront their abuser. So we need to use wisdom in church settings. And, you know, if, if there's a threat of violence, somebody maybe has a record of violent behavior in the past, or if there's criminal activity involved, you guys, you know, use, keep safety in mind, use wisdom, pull in the proper authorities, okay? It's very important. So let's look at some other tips for gentle restoration here. Um, your job is always to offer hope through the good news of the gospel, so when you confront someone, try to keep this in mind, okay? You're trying to help this person escape the trap of sin. And so you need to think back to times when maybe you were ensnared in a similar situation. So you're going to offer hope. And a way to do that might be to set up a time for a meeting. So these are some practical application tips, okay? Things that you can do to try to help them. So first off, if, if you're going to meet with this person, don't catch them off guard ask for the meeting, okay? Don't demand it. Just say, may I talk to you about this situation? Is there a good time we could get together to discuss this? And then plan your words carefully. So you want to use I statements. You don't want to accuse. I statements would be, um, when you've done this, it makes me feel frustrated or fill in the blank. So you're telling that person how you feel, not accusing them of what they've done. Okay, does that make sense? Got it. Okay. So you want to talk from beside the person, not from a position above them. And that's important. You want to speak to them as their brother and sister, their equal. Okay. And then another really important thing is use the Bible carefully and sparingly. And if you're dealing with a non-believer, perhaps not at all. Okay, because if they're a non-believer, they're not going to recognize the authority of Scripture. If they are a believer and you come in hot and heavy with the Word of God, they're going to feel like you are bashing them hard. 
So be careful. Use scripture sparingly. Um, use good listening and attending skills. They need to know that you're willing to hear them. Okay, so good listening and, t and attending skills means you're going to make eye contact and you're going to use open body language. You're not going to do this through the conversation. <laughs> okay, you got to be open and relaxed. Okay, and then always a good idea to try to and identify common ground and areas of, of agreement early in the conversation to let them know that you're not just coming at them with a hammer. Okay, so try and find those common ground areas early on. All right, more tips. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. made a very astute observation. He said that people fail to get along because they fear each other. They fear each other because they don't know each other, and they don't know each other because they have not communicated with each other. So communicating is often the first steps toward understanding your opponent's point of view. And so sometimes a lot of conflicts can be solved just by sitting down and understanding where the other person, the other party is coming from and acknowledging that. All right, let's move on to our fourth G, go and be reconciled. And this one I think is probably the one that I like the most um, because reconciling is really what the gospel is all about. Um, reconciling means to restore friendship and harmony. And Jesus actually prioritized reconciliation above worship, amazingly. Um, and he said that in Matthew chapter 5, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, he said, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled. And then come and offer your gift. So that's, that's pretty powerful for me about the importance of, of doing this reconciliation step. So the key question we're going to ask ourselves for G number four, how can I demonstrate the forgiveness of God and encourage a reasonable solution to this conflict? So that's what we're going to look at with this G. So a little bit about forgiveness. Forgiveness is the primary means of reconciliation. If there's been an offense, if somebody's mistreated somebody, we're, we're going to eventually have to get around to forgiveness to be able to reconcile with that person. So again, Ephesians chapter 4, love that chapter, so many good verses in there. Be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. So we always need to keep that front and center. We forgive because we needed forgiveness and we were forgiven. So very, very important. Um, repentance is the prerequisite to forgiveness, which then leads to restoration. So forgiveness and restoration are always going to follow repentance. So a little word now about forgiveness and reconciliation and just how to handle that whole process. Because we know that um, forgiveness is really a decision. I think we're all usually pretty clear that it's not a feeling. It's a decision. It's something that we do. Um, when you find that you're in a situation where it's difficult for you to forgive, definitely draw on God's strength to help. Forgiveness does not involve just passively forgetting or excusing a wrong, um, nor does it automatically release somebody from all the consequences. Okay. So keep in mind that withholding forgiveness, though, if someone is repenting to you and asking for it, if you withhold forgiveness, it really is a, sim a sinful attitude. And it usually results from a desire to punish or control the offender. Okay, It's inconsistent with God's forgiveness, 
which we all know we could never hope to earn. Um, he gives his forgiveness freely to us when we ask. So we need to keep that in mind. According to Ken Sandy, reconciliation requires that you give a repentant person an opportunity to demonstrate repentance and regain your trust. If the person stumbles, the process of loving, confrontation, confession, and forgiveness may need to be repeated. So sometimes it's a, it's a process that kind of goes through some cycles and happens more than once. So he adds, being reconciled does not mean that the person who offended you must now become your closest friend, but it means your relationship needs to be at least as good as it was before the offense occurred. Does that make sense? And if we think about it, you know, when God forgives us, he doesn't say, okay, Pam, I forgive you, but I don't want to hang out with you. Does the Spirit do that to us? No. When he forgives us, he brings us back into fellowship. And so we need to make sure that when we go through a reconciliation process, that we're not just saying the words, but that we're actually inviting those people back into fellowship with us and restoring them. That's what it means to gently restore. So let's talk a little bit about trying to find those good, healthy, productive solutions. And so this is a little bit of competitive versus cooperative negotiation. Sometimes you've got to negotiate some things with people. It's like, how are we going to handle this? So um, sometimes uh, there are two ways to approach a situation. Um, competitive negotiation, which is the first one we're going to look at here, tends to be self-centered and can damage relationships, and it's typically based on this fixed pie approach that assumes that one person has to lose something for the other person to gain. Okay, And so that's when things can get pretty intense. Um, competitive negotiation can be time-consuming, and it often fails to adequately solve an issue at hand. So in contrast, another way to approach it would be a cooperative negotiation. Um, cooperative negotiation um, is going to demonstrate a concern for the needs of others, not just yourself. It actually can improve the relationship and it allows both sides to contribute to the solution, which is kind of fun. It's not just I win, you lose, but both get to contribute. So it can be a win-win. And it does not necessarily mean giving in to all demands, but seeking ways in which both parties can benefit by generating a creative solution. The Apostle Paul commended competitive, or I'm sorry, cooperative negotiation when he, when he wrote, don't be selfish, don't try to impress others, be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. This is another point where um, the gospel can kind of come into a conversation because if you sit down with somebody and you approach that negotiation with, well, hey, I'm worried about what's going to benefit you the most in this situation, and you're communicating your concern for their good, that's going to catch their attention. They're going to be like, why do you care so much? There's your open door to share the gospel right there. So a cooperative negotiation can really be a, a cool thing to do. And then if you need to negotiate, here are some tips in the PAUSE acronym, so PREPARE. Pray first, um, gather some information maybe about your opponent's situation, and even potentially develop a proposal ahead of time. Uh, when you meet with that person, you want to affirm the relationship and how important it is to you to maintain that relationship. 
You want to understand the other person's interests to make sure both sides are clear on what that is to so give everybody a chance to explain that. And then search for creative solutions. Be open to something you haven't considered yet. So creative solutions can come out of that, oh, we actually are going to both contribute. And then evaluate options objectively and reasonably. It can be amazing some of the things that come out of this process. So those are a couple of tips. And then as we're kind of getting ready to uh, wrap up here, I want to quickly talk a little bit about preventing unnecessary conflict. And here's a fun picture. I guess there's two ways to sort of view this. We've got Smokey the Bear and his surroundings look a little charred there and he's giving that warning the fire danger's high today. <laughs> so I don't know, we could either look at this and say someone ignored the warning or maybe that was a controlled burn to prevent a much larger fire. <laughs> I don't know. But some tips for how to prevent unnecessary conflict. All right. Um, looking again at some research, some of the things that were identified um, that increasing levels of change in your church or your organization and also increasing financial difficulty, those are going to correlate with increased conflict. So anytime you're moving into a time of, of high change or financial difficulty, just kind of get prepared because conflict is probably going to also rise in those situations. So the faster your church changes, the more you're going to need to manage conflict. Um, also, uh, another tip for preventing conflict is be careful with communication. So watch communication closely. Um, avoiding ambiguity is so important. You're going to want to summarize agreements with people in writing whenever possible. And don't just rely on, well, I remember so-and-so said, let's write it down. So clear um, written communication, this author writes, has proven remarkably successful at keeping my enemies to a minimum. This discipline also forces me during meetings to focus on negotiating clear, unambiguous, mutually agreed upon action items. So um, communicating clearly and making sure it's written down and everybody sees that and is in agreement can be huge for your church, your team, whatever organization or group you're working with. So some other sources of conflict would be maybe organizational structures that are not so effective. Um, again, cross-cultural differences. Somebody may come in a situation with one set of expectations because of their family of origin or their background, and another group may come at that situation with a different set of expectations. Um, and then finally, dysfunctional people just the reality of it. Um, the more successful we are as a church at going out and finding lost people with broken lives and getting them saved and inviting them into our church, folks, they're going to bring some of that dysfunctionality and their brokenness into the church with them. And we have to be prepared to help them grow and to deal with some of that dysfunctionality. So that's, that's a reality. So some suggestions are going to be to treat everybody with respect just be very careful with that. And then try to identify problems openly and address them on the same day that they occur if you can. So for example, if you got a worship team, highly encourage after the service, get that worship team together for like three minutes and have them talk through like with the leader, this went great today, so and so you did awesome. Hey, I noticed we had this problem. Let's figure out how that happened and what we can do to prevent it next time. Two to three minutes does wonders. 
Okay, so if we're dealing openly with those issues and in a respectful way, we can prevent a lot of fire. <laughs> so, okay, let's keep going here. Um, minimizing personal contributions to conflict. Again, we want to, um, these are things that you can do. We want to understand that our, our identity is definitely in Christ. We want to practice self-care as leaders. So it's very important that you guys are spending time in the Word, worshiping, staying healthy, taking that Sabbath. Don't get overworked. <laughs> okay. Practice silence and solitude. That's your opportunity to reflect on maybe have I contributed to a conflict. Um, that's that opportunity for Holy Spirit to speak to you and show you things that you can do to help improve a situation. And then cultivating emotional intelligence. That's just basically your knowledge of what's going on with you and also how other people are going to respond. So some great, a great book on this topic. If you find that you know, you're constantly dealing with a lot of relationship, um, just upheaval and things like that, a great book to read might be Peter Scazzaro's Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And his premise there is that it's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. So if you want to work on that whole concept of um, emotion, being emotionally healthy and emotionally mature, it's a great book. Highly recommend it. Okay. Um, real quickly, I want to talk a little bit about the Matthew 18 model of conflict resolution. I'm sure a lot of you are very familiar with it. Um, Matthew 18 is something that I know I go to a lot. Um, Ken Sandy says that the Matthew 18 model is really important because it's, we should always try to keep the circle of people involved in a conflict um, as small as possible for as long as possible. And if you notice in Matthew 18, the first step is just between the two of you. If a brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. So again, that's trying to keep that circle small at first. Um, a lot of times I will have people come to me and say, well, I'm having this problem with so-and-so, and, -so, and I'm, I just stop them right there. I'm like, have you talked to so-and-so about the problem yet? And they're like, no. I'm like, go do it. <laughs> don't, don't pull me in until you've done that step. So step two is take one or two others. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So let your opponent know um, before you do so, that you intend to bring someone else in to assist you. Oftentimes, if you tell them that, it's like, hey, you and I have talked. We've tried to work this out. I don't feel like it's been resolved. I'd like to bring in someone else to help us talk through this. Sometimes just that alone, they'll be like, okay, let's get this resolved now, because they don't want to deal with a third person. <laughs> so that can actually be helpful. Step three. If that, that third person doesn't work, then it's time to take this a little bit further um, to church leadership. So if they re still refuse to listen, you can tell it to the church. So basically the idea of this is bringing your church leadership in to help with the situation. And ideally, the idea should be that the decision of the church leadership should be binding on the situation. So church friends then would be there to kind of gently remind the parties of their obligation to work this out. And then if the stubborn party refuses to comply with the church leader's decision, then it's time to proceed with step four. 
And so we know what step four in this process is, is to treat them as a non-believer. Now this is interesting because some people feel like, oh, this means I get to shun them. They're not part of our church anymore. Uh-uh, no. Treat them as a non-believer. That means treat them as somebody you want to win back into fellowship. That means treat them with respect and love. Okay, but it also means that if that person did have a leadership role, they should be relieved of it, at least temporarily, until the situation is resolved. Okay, because we wouldn't put a non-believer in charge of a leadership position within our church. So we get, we're going to relieve them of those duties until they demonstrate that repentance and that restoration process, and then we can put them back into leadership. Does that make sense? Great. Okay. Is it time to go to court? Just a word about this. Um, Maybe, but probably not. (laughs) The Bible does discourage Christians from taking other Christians to court because it's preferred to do this conflict peacemaking process first outside of court. Um, Paul spoke about this in 1 Corinthians 6. You can go in and read more about it there. I'm not going to do that now because we're running short on time. And then applying the Matthew 18 process. Um, It's important to use Matthew 18 process openly in the church. A lot of conflict could be avoided, redirected, and reduced if congregational leaders would deal openly with it and follow that process. Uh, And then just a quick word here about conflict in dysfunctional spaces. I'm going to say this. If your kitchen catches fire and you've got smoke and flames everywhere, you don't try and handle it yourself, do you? Because you realize at a certain point that the fire extinguisher is not going to work. You call the professionals. You call 911 to get the fire department there. If your church or your situation is, in, is involved in a situation that's getting out of control, don't try to handle it yourself. We have really, really great folks here in the Ohio Ministry Network who specialize in church health. Pastor John Musgrave is one of those people. Sometimes you need to call in backup. You need to get some professionals to come in and consult and maybe mediate the conflict. And there's no shame in doing that. So it's always, always very important to get help. So sometimes uh, we may have some dysfunctional relationships going on. So control, aggression, crisis orientation, self-centeredness, some of these things um, could be signs of dysfunctionality going on. And that would be when you need to pull in some experts and get some some expert advice. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and close our session today. We have, I think, about two or three minutes left. If anyone has a question, I'll go ahead and take those. What do you all think overall? I know it's a lot of information. If you're wanting to dive in more, definitely The Peacemaker, Ken Sandy. It's a great book. I highly recommend. I do have one. Actually. Yes. Um, in the, when you were talking about how you want to go to the person that you are having conflict with directly, do you think it's appropriate without dropping names to go to a mentor and ask um, for advice on how to deal with the conflict itself? That's a, that's a great question. Um, So the question was, uh, if you are involved in a conflict and you want to go start that Matthew 18 process as uh, the first person, 
um, but you're not quite sure how to approach it. Can you go to a mentor without dropping names to get advice? And I would say yes. If you're being very non-specific about it, I would say that probably is appropriate. Um, but it would be important still to go to that person alone without the mentor as that first step. So yeah, I would say that would be appropriate. Great question. Anyone else? All right. Well, thank you all so much for coming. I hope this was helpful. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your sessions today. Thank you. God bless.